0: This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn there. It is hopefully going to be a happy new year for us, but a good way for us to start it out would be to contemplate and think about God's great salvation, the great gospel, the great good news of salvation in Christ. And so we are going to be talking about that this morning, we're going to be learning about the greatness of salvation in Christ, but we are going to be learning about it from a less than likely source. We're not going to learn from Paul. We're not going to learn from Peter or James or John. In one sense, we're not going to learn from Jesus, though we certainly will learn from Jesus. We're going to learn from an unlikely source, and that unlikely source will be none other than a criminal. And that would be the thief on the cross. And so as we do that this morning, I trust we'll all learn about salvation as we learn from this infamous thief, one of the men who is crucified along with Jesus. As we do this, you'll be able to make at least four lessons uh, noteworthy. Let me quickly preview those right now. Four lessons about salvation from the thief on the cross, and they are as follows. Number one, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. And by that, I'll explain what I don't mean in a little while. Number two, that will need a qualifier. Number two, anyone who is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anyone who is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Number three, a third lesson from the thief on the cross to hopefully teach us about salvation would be everyone won't be saved. Everyone won't be saved. Number four, and finally this, mo- this morning we'll learn this lesson, everyone who is saved will bear fruit. Everyone who is saved will bear fruit. They'll show signs of life if there's new life. And so we'll look at those this morning, but before we actually start looking at those, let's read the text together and take it in. Let's... Read what's recorded for us by Dr. Luke, who's paying attention to the details. In chapter 23, we'll read verse 33 down through 43. So here we are outside of the city gates. Here we are in Jerusalem. And we read these words from God's Word beginning in verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39 then reads, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so ends God's word. Let's learn lessons from this account now together. Lesson number one about salvation, hoping that we take it to heart and we learn this today would be, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. What I don't mean is somehow to deny the reality that God does in fact, to quote scripture, choose before the foundation of the world. I know that. I don't mean to deny election or anything like that. I mean in this sense, anyone can be saved. To quote that famous Christian hymn, Even the vilest offender. Arguing from the worser, if I can put it that way for effect, from the worser to the greater. If this guy could be saved, then someone who's done lesser acts of evil could be saved. That's all I'm meaning by that. Do notice he's one of the criminals. In verse 39, he's described as one of the criminals. Do notice also in verse 41 that he admits his guilt, which is rather profound in verse 41. And we, speaking to the other criminal, this man says, indeed, justly or fairly or righteously, for we are receiving the due reward, the fair, the just reward of our deeds. How about that? We're getting what we deserve He's acknowledging that he is not a good person. In fact, he, by his actions, has shown himself to be extraordinarily bad as far as the things that he's done. He's not saying, hey, I don't deserve to be here. He's saying, we're actually getting what we deserve. It's quite an admission. We deserve to be crucified? Whatever this man did, it was bad. We don't know exactly what he did. He's referred to as a thief, which doesn't seem to be that heinous. It doesn't seem to be that bad. But we do know that people who committed petty theft, even some pretty significant thievery, were not punished by crucifixion. So whatever he did, it was worse than that. And here's a little hint extra-biblical source. Josephus, the Jewish writer, uses the same Greek word in the first century that is used here for those who would commit treason. Calls him the same word that we have translated thief in our Bibles. Somebody who's against the government. Somebody who's trying to overthrow the government. Perhaps there's killing involved trying to get there. We don't know exactly, but whatever is going on here, it's not just trying to steal something at Walgreens. It's a a major big deal where the Roman government wants to make you an example and put you on display and you are going to be crucified. What's interesting for us to notice is that this man acknowledges the justice of what he's receiving. He's not the infamous guy who says, well, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. He's guilty. And he acknowledges that he's guilty. He was a, extraordinarily bad person as far as his outward acts are concerned. So we need to notice that. And if that's true, if this guy could be saved, arguing from the greater to the lesser, that means you could be saved. And By the way, when I say saved, I'm using it as a, a biblical phrase and Christians use this a lot. If it's new to you, to be rescued, to be delivered, to be saved. Ultimately, what we mean as Christians, ultimately to be saved from God. To be saved from judgment. The Bible in no uncertain terms, even in Jesus' teaching, teaches that everyone is a sinner. Not everyone does what this man did, but everyone is a sinner. Everyone has violated God's law. Not a single person who has ever lived apart from Jesus has loved the one true God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor have they loved their neighbor as themselves. So we're all lawbreakers. So when I'm saying again and again today, saved, that's what I mean by that. This man, on this day, was saved. Spared from the judgment of God. Because Jesus says to him, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. This guy can be saved. Then I could be saved. The seemingly unsavable could be saved. This is good news for you. (laughs) It's good news for me. It's good that we have this recorded in our Bibles. This wouldn't be true for all of you, but I imagine there's some of you who have struggled with whether or not you could be forgiven because of things you've done. Maybe things people don't know about. Maybe they do know about them. Maybe things you are doing and you think, there could be no atonement for this. There could be no saving. A lot of people throughout history have thought that very thing. Learn a lesson from a thief on the cross. If this guy could be saved as far as his badness and his actions as a sinner, you could be saved too. Regardless of what you're doing right now. Regardless of what you've done. This is good news. We're learning about God's great salvation from none other than a thief. The Apostle Paul is also chiming in here on this very same kind of thing. He wasn't trying to overthrow the Roman government. He was... So devoutly religious as a zealot that he hated Christ and hated Christians. And God saved him. And so he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, I was a blasphemer, one who, may, who lies about God, promotes false things about God, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy that he couldn't have been more against Jesus. And God saved him. Man, if he could be spared, no doubt there's hope for the rest of us. Not only would I encourage you to think about that in terms of your own life, think about those other people that you might be tempted to think are unsavable. People you know who do such bad things that, that you know about or seem so hostile to Christ that there's just no hope for them, perhaps you've even stopped praying for them. You know what? If this guy could be saved, there's hope. For even, as the great song says, the vilest offender, who truly believes, is what the song says, learn from the thief. Learn from this guy. Now, granted, in one sense, I, I, I like your thinking if you're thinking I could never be forgiven. In one sense. I know I'm contradicting myself, but just hang with me. In one sense, that's not bad thinking altogether. If you're thinking, I've done these things, I just don't know how I could ever be saved. I don't know how my sins could ever be paid for, atoned for. How could it ever happen? It's not altogether bad thinking because the Bible does teach if you sin, you must die. Not just physically, but even spiritually. Spiritually. A death that the Bible even describes as the second death that lasts forever. And if it's based upon you, there can be no atonement. And if it's based upon your religiosity and moralistic do-gooderism, hoping your good outweighs your bad, you can never be forgiven. There's no atonement. If it's based upon, if I could just stay on the religious treadmill for another minute on incline, there's no hope, there's no atonement. See, the whole point of Christianity is there's atonement not through your treadmilling when it comes to religion, but there is hope through that. There is hope through the cross. There is hope through what Christ has done. There is hope in His substitutionary life of righteousness. In His substitutionary death. A sinner's death though He never sinned. In His substitutionary, we read about it earlier in Mark, resurrection from the dead. It's good news. So I commend your thinking if you think you could never be forgiven if you're forgetting about Jesus. But you've got to remember Christ. Like the thief who's next to Jesus is being made fully aware of. And Jesus says to him, and I quote, verse 43, you can see it right there. Truly, that is sincerely, genuinely, truly I say to you, today. How about that? Not after you Die and suffer and go through all the hoops, rigmarole, torture. Today you will be with me in paradise. He can say that because of what Jesus is doing for him at the time. And Jesus will go on to say, It is finished. Now, we'd have to rely on the rest of the Bible to provide commentary for all of this, like Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 all of Romans, all of Galatians, all of Colossians, all of Ephesians. Just trying to say, don't take my word for it. This guy can be saved, you could be saved. And so can the apparently unsavable people. This is good news. This is encouraging. It's troubling to me, but it helps us to get a pulse on where people are in their thinking But you hear about a death row inmate. Now and then you'll hear about a death row inmate and they make a profession of faith in Jesus as their Savior. Now, I don't know their heart. Obviously, it's a convenient time to make sure you, you know, get fire insurance. You don't know their heart. But if they're genuinely trusting in Christ with seconds to spare, Before the injection. If this guy could be saved, they could be saved. Because it's not about them. It is about Christ. It is about His work on their behalf. And you say, I don't know how those guys could ever be saved. You're asking the wrong question. You need a radical paradigm shift. If you're saying, how could they ever be saved? The better question is, how could anyone ever be saved? You have an infinitely holy, righteous God who justly, fairly can condemn everyone to an eternal hell. How could anyone be saved? Christ's righteousness. Christ's atonement. Christ's resurrection. It's about Him. Learn from the thief on the cross. That even the vilest offender can be saved. Why? Because of Christ. Learn from him. It's through the merits of another. Now, by the way, just to get a pulse on American Christendom, the reason we're thinking that, the reason we say I don't, I don't think so, I don't know how how could they ever be saved, it's because we think we're good people. And our efforts are going to get us in. And after all, we've been better than he's been. He killed somebody. The fact of the matter is, while I've never killed anyone, I am a sinner. I'm a rebel. I've committed spiritual treason against God because I haven't treated him like he's the one true God and therefore given him all of my worship, all of my devotion with perfect motives all of the time. This is why our Bibles have... Psalm 14, Romans 3, we've all sinned. Americans, everybody on the planet, because we don't admit that we're guilty, I'll pick on Americans because I am one. We don't understand the first thing about sin. And so we say, that's not fair that that guy could be saved. <laughs> it's not fair that anybody could be. It's grace. Please learn from this guy. Learn from this man who Jesus promises paradise And have it cause a shift in your thinking where you look at people differently. Have it cause a shift in your thinking where you look at yourself differently. Sinner, saved by God's grace, if that's true. Let's move on now to learn another lesson from the thief on the cross regarding salvation. And that would be anyone who is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if I can just give you a a mini connection to history as far as why I'm saying it that way. I'm saying it that way because that's been the classic way for Christians now for many, many, many years to to codify, to to systematize what we believe the whole Bible teaches. So I'm purposely saying it this way, not off the top of my head. Well, off the top of my head because I've memorized it. But we purposely say we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's so what we believe. That would be a creed at Omaha Bible Church, even though you don't see it in the bulletin. Because it's so much a heart of who we are and what we do, because we're Christians. Uh, th- this would be our confession, even though you won't find it in the bulletin. It's just what we confess is because it's biblical. It's, it's Romans, it's, it's, it's Genesis, it's Galatians, it's everywhere. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I wouldn't go to the thief To build my argument. We've been in Romans for a long time. It's there explicitly, clearly. Galatians, explicitly, clearly. Ephesians, explicitly, clearly. And on and on the list could go. In this historic narrative, we see it exemplified. Let's go ahead and... See that he was saved by grace alone. How do we know that? Well, actually, there, there, there's nothing in the text that proves that other than everything in the text proves it. He's saying, I'm guilty. We already saw that. I deserve to be here. So do you, pal, but not Jesus. He's a bad guy. So if Jesus promises him paradise, how did he earn that? He couldn't have. It was grace. Christians have been defining grace for a long time as, as, well, it means something free, something unearned. And so we've specifically said it's the unmerited favor of God. It's not only the favor of God, it's the unmerited favor of God because sometimes religion hijacks the word and says, graces. And if you do enough things, you can earn enough graces. Ah, man, if I didn't have a headache before, I do now. And a red spot on my head. Um, that was dumb. guys you're gonna earn graces it's double talk it doesn't even make sense so if if you're coming from that religion you got to get rid of that baggage grace means something you didn't earn it's free you don't get graces grace is nothing grace is favor from god it's not quantifiable this man is saved only by grace it's it's unmerited favor He, he couldn't have done anything he couldn't say, oh, just a second, um, Jesus, I'm going to quick go to, to temple to earn some favor, read church. Uh, if I, I'm just, I, let me quick go get baptized as a grace. Let me quick go take communion as a grace or whatever it might be. It's grace. It's free. He couldn't have done anything. As a matter of fact, and I've made a habit of saying this and I'll say it again, it might even help if we don't think of grace as unmerited favor, we think of grace as demerited favor. And others have helped us with this, James White and different writers before him. Think about this. Unmerited favor would be spiritually I have nothing. And God gives me salvation. The reality is, spiritually, I'm in the red. I've offended God. Everyone has. We're sinners. And he gives us his son for atonement and sacrifice. Wow! Grace is even better than I might have even imagined. And I'm suggesting to you, this guy is a sinner, and Jesus says, today he'll be with me in paradise. Where did that come from? came from God giving him what he didn't deserve. Please learn that. Learn that about you so that you might trust in this one. Learn that about people who are around you. Learn about salvation from the thief. Now, before we get to faith alone, listen to this. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We'll be in Titus 3 tonight. I love this because it's a great commentary on this passage. Titus 3, 5. He saved us. Notice it's all God's acting. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Who does all this? Who does the renewing? Who does the regenerating? It's the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we earn that? He's making the point we didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's not by works. Thief on the cross is a great example. All right, salvation for this man still on the second lesson. It's not only by grace alone, it is through faith alone. It's the means. He doesn't say, okay, grace is this, nebulous thing out here and i'm going to get grace by doing you know god is gracious and he calls us to believe in his son belief is trust belief is dependence belief is reliance this man is not trusting in himself he's not trusting in one of the many roman demigods he's not crying out to to his ancestors on the cross To do something for him, as would be common in the Roman culture? No. Look what it says in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he doesn't use the word faith there, but that's a great way of describing this man's faith. What is he doing? He's relying on Jesus. You know, there's only one way out of this mess for me, and it's by you doing something. Jesus, remember me. He is, to quote Romans chapter 10, calling on the name of the Lord is what he's doing. With the promise being if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's what's happening here. He's believing. He's trusting. He's depending. And this is how it always is. This is how it was in the Old Testament. It's how it is here. It's how it is later. Romans 4 makes that clear. Whether you're talking about Abraham or talking about Peter or James or John or Paul or Pat or yourself, learn it from this guy. He's believing in Jesus. It's not a work of righteousness. He's a criminal and he's getting paradise. How does that work? Grace, trusting in the merits of another. That's how it works. It's humbling though, think about it. So you're telling me, pastor, that it's all of Jesus for this guy. Yep. Yeah, but how's that going to make him feel about himself? <laughs> well, I hope he feels pretty good, but he feels really good about Jesus because he's a, he, he's an atoning savior. Yeah, but how do, I don't know if that's really a helpful self-esteem message to tell my kids. Well, it's not. Your kids are sinners who deserve to go to hell. Just like you are. Chip off the old block. And so am I. Faith acknowledges desperation, inability, sin. This man is saying, Jesus, remember me because of all the good I've done. Because I'm a good person. Learn from the thief. He acknowledges his guilt. He's trusting in the merits of another by calling on the name of the Lord. He's believing in Christ. J. Gresham Machin, one of my favorite dead guys, who taught at Princeton before getting shown the door for teaching the gospel and fidelity to the scripture, said this, The center of the Bible and the center of Christianity is found in the grace of God. And the necessary corollary or partner of the grace of God is salvation through faith alone. And he's exactly right. Think about it. If it's free, you don't earn it. Well, what is left to be done? Well, there's nothing to be done. It's not based upon your works. And so how is it that you can get what Christ did how is it that becomes personal by what you do you're you're just trusting that he's going to do it and that's what's happening here jesus remember me that brings us to salvation not only by grace alone through faith alone but also in christ alone and i've already gotten ahead of myself because uh, of what he does say in verse 42 when he calls on jesus he doesn't call again upon someone else as would have been common, customary in Roman culture, assuming this man is a Roman, whether he is or he isn't, I can't be certain, but he's not calling on anyone other than Jesus, which fits the rest of scripture, whether it be First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, or Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and the list could go on. It's Christ, only Christ. Learn that from the thief. Let the thief be your example. If you've never believed in Christ, trusted in Christ, then trust in Christ. Be like the hardened criminal because at least he knew he had a problem. Be like this guy. And if you have trusted in Christ, learn from the criminal about your own salvation and think about other people in terms of who this guy is. Changes our perspective. Changes our grid. Let's move on to number three. Everyone won't be saved. We can do this one rather quickly. Verse 43 would help us with this. Everyone won't be saved. This isn't universalism. Jesus doesn't save everybody. It says right there in verse 43, and he, speaking about Jesus, said to him, one of these men, not both of these men, he said to him, truly I say to you, not Texas y'all, plural, today you, singular, will be with me in paradise. This is horrifying. This is troubling. This keeps you up at night perhaps. But Jesus isn't a universalist, and Christianity isn't, teach it's not a religion of universality, other than everyone is a sinner, and Christ is the one and only Savior. But the Bible clearly does not teach that everyone is saved. Two men, very similar, as we'll see in just a moment, they breathe their last, they step into eternity, And the horrifying reality is one man gets gets exactly what he deserves. To pay for his own sin. And the other man gets what he didn't deserve. He gets a gift. Salvation. Because that man believed in Christ. He trusted in Christ. He didn't believe in himself and he didn't believe in the religion of his family or whatever it might have been. He's trusting in Christ is what he's doing. Have that in your mind. You want to learn more about this? Read how the Bible ends. The Bible ends gloriously about restoration and salvation, about Christ getting the glory for it. But do note also that the Bible ends making a clear distinction between those who believe in Christ and those who believe in themselves. And the Bible uses... The two words forever and ever to describe what it's going to take for them to deal with their own sins. Under the wrath of the Lamb. Learn from the thief. Please learn from the thief. Maybe one more observation about this before we move on to the fourth would be as we learn... As we learn from this guy please do notice that both of these men are close to Jesus right they're there they see him there they know about what he's done being close to Jesus doesn't get you saved Jesus has been doing undeniable miracles to the point where the religious leaders are not saying that. that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. They're seeing it happen. Think about that. They're close to him. One continues to believe in himself. One believes in him. It's a stretch, but I think a legitimate one, of application. We're not living in first century Palestine. We're not there. But in a secondary sense, by way of application, if you are here today, there's a closeness to Jesus. You're gathered together with His people, singing His praises, reading of His work from His book, praying in His name, your spouse might be a believer and you see what Jesus has done in their life. You might have children who are believers. You see what Jesus has done in their life. It doesn't mean they're perfect because they're sinners saved by grace and only by grace, but you see something has happened. And in that sense, you're close to Jesus. Please, please do not think that by being close, close, connected to the family of God like this, that it means you're in. This guy is right next to Jesus, and he will die, and he will pay for his own sins. Just so awful. Not unfair from a God who says, if you sin, you will die. But awful. Don't be deceived, learn from a thief. Learn from this thief, this beggar thief begging Jesus, and Jesus granted to him. all right let's move on to number four a fourth and final vital lesson about salvation that we can learn from a hardened criminal, and that would be everyone who is saved will bear fruit. Everyone who is saved will bear fruit. I used to sing a song growing up if you're saved, then you know it. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, you know, something dumb. Stomp your feet. Um, Well, I didn't learn much growing up. And I certainly didn't learn the gospel. But that song is at least half right. Because it would be, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's not altogether a right statement because you might not even know you're saved and you're saved and your life will show it. So why would I even bring it up? I don't know. So what happens when you veer from your notes. <laughs> what we will see from the thief on the cross is if you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, it won't remain alone. Something will happen. If you're dead in trespasses and sins one moment and the Holy Spirit regenerates you and you have life the next moment, guess what? It'll look like you are now alive. It won't look like you're dead anymore. Sometimes we describe this as a fruit in the Bible. If you're a tree that's alive, you'll bear fruit. If you're really saved, you're really a Christian, your life is going to show you're really a Christian whether you know it or not. Now some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, I believe that. I was at the last Sunday night service in Titus chapter 2 and I saw it with my own eyes. Some of you are thinking, I, I, I've read Romans chapter 6. I know that what you're saying is true. But I wonder how you're going to prove it with thief on the cross. Perhaps others of you might be thinking, I don't even believe that. So I wonder how you're going to prove that with the thief on the cross. Well, once again, I wouldn't start with a thief to build my whole theology. I would start with Titus 2. I would start with Ephesians chapter 2. I would start with other texts that are defining doctrine for us. But we do see, provided we're willing to do a little bit of work and look at the narratives, this man goes from acting hostily toward Jesus to a matter of moments, from a matter of moments to doing the right thing. We see the man's life change right before our very eyes. I'll admit to you, I'm bringing this up in part because so many times people who say your life never changes if you're a Christian, maybe it does, hope it does, but not, not, not necessarily because after all, thief on the cross. And I say after all, read the gospel accounts. Let's do that now. Let's see that his life did change. And let's go back to Matthew chapter 27 to kind of set the context. Let's look at the before, after, before, after, before, after. Matthew 27, 39 to 44, we see that this guy was acting outrightly, blatantly hostile toward Jesus. And then we see that he's not anymore. In fact, he's doing the right thing in Luke 23. So if you're going to be a good uh, Sherlock Holmes, Bible student here. You're going to look at all of the evidence and you're going to see the, the fullness of the narratives together and you're going to see the guy is outwardly hostile and the next moment he is defending Jesus, embracing Jesus, calling on Jesus. Matthew 27. Um, start with verse 44, even though we're going to back up a little bit. Verse 44, and the robbers, plural, So this guy's in the mix. Who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Oh, now now let's back up and let's see kind of the flow of things. If it's in the same way, let's just see how bad it was for both robbers, not just one of them. Verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So they're mocking him. Verse 40, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Then verse 44, and the robbers, both guys, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. What it is not saying is all along the good thief was troubled over all of this. All along he's chiming in. He's revealing his true nature. He's unregenerate. And he is against as against Jesus as the scribes and Pharisees are. Then we go back to our Luke account and we see him singing a different song. A totally different song. In a totally different key. Which tells me that this man's life changed in moments of time. Just by way of survey, getting back to Luke's account, in verse 41, he acknowledges his sin and his guilt. That's a place to start. He's not the infamous criminal that says, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. How about in verse 40? He even confronts the other criminal. You know? He was doing it in one moment. And the next minute he's saying, shut your mouth, pal. That looks like a life change to me. A 180. Verses 40 and 41. You might even say that that looks and smells an awful lot lot like some evangelistic zeal going on. I don't know. Verse 42. Your kingdom. He's acknowledging the sovereign lordship of Jesus. Jesus. Oh, and how about in putting his neck on the line in front of all of these people that he was in concert with, and now he's saying, in your kingdom, Lord. This guy just got done counting the cost by associating himself with Jesus in a radical way. J.C. Ryle, who I've stolen all of this from, In his book, Holiness, which is first it first wasn't actually a book. It's just miscellaneous articles on sanctification, so it doesn't really read like a book. Find it online. I think you can find the article. This comes from the chapter uh, called something like Christ's greatest trophy. Magnificent. Well done. Bishop J.C. Ryle says this about this passage and this reality of this guy's life change. Let no man therefore think. Because the penitent or repentant thief was saved, that men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the Spirit's work. Don't, don't ever conclude that. And certainly don't use this guy as your proof. He goes on to say, Let such a one consider well what evidences this man left behind, and take care, he says. Ephesians 2.10, God saves us for good works that we would be able to walk in them. He doesn't save us by good works. He saves us by grace alone through faith alone. That's Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Ephesians 2.10, He saves us for good works so that we would walk in them amazingly enough. The thief on the cross is already busy, though he cannot walk literally. He is already busy walking in the good works that God had prepared beforehand. It's awesome. Not so he can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 already covered that. Other than to boast in Christ. Look what has even happened to my life. There's no such thing as being dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3. God's saving, but having there be no signs of life. The whole reality of God's saving is, He regenerates. He gives you a new heart. You, 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 you've been made alive with Christ. So where there's new birth, there's signs of life. That's all. Evidences. Was this man perfect? No way. But the process of sanctification, of spiritual growth, had already started. It's quite impressive. And it shouldn't cause us to be impressed with a thief. (laughs) It should cause us to be impressed with the grace of God. That God's grace would do this to this guy. That he at one moment is mocking Jesus. And the next moment he's saying, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. I acknowledge that you are the Messiah. The King. The Anointed One. The Lord. Total life change. Radical life change. There's a command in the Bible in Acts chapter 16, and the command is this believe. It's a command. God sent his son into this world to save sinners like you and like me. And he says, believe. Believe and you'll be saved, it says. The thief believed and he was saved. Not because of his own merits, but because of the merits of Jesus. I echo those words this morning. Based upon the authority of God's word, based upon the authority of the Bible, I would say, as personally as I can, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The command comes with a promise. Save from God. Save from yourself. Save from your sin. It's absolutely fantastic. And we can learn it from the thief. My prayer is that you will. Pray with me if you would. Father, I pray for those who have not believed in Jesus, that they would believe in Jesus. Not because they've heard something persuasive, but because they've heard the gospel. They would embrace Jesus as Savior. And by your grace, they would repent of sin. And they would find themselves saved and lord for those who are saved by your grace lord may this be a good reminder for us even as we start a new year and as we are burdened for people that we know people in our families people we work with people we go to school with spouses in some cases that this would be a year where we remember that you are a god who saves sinners that we would keep people on our prayer list we would add people to our prayer list. And that we would plead with you, the God of salvation, to do what you and you only can do according to your own sovereign good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.